Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Thank you and good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning after a week of being away for a wedding in the family. And if you're new with us this morning, we are taking the summer to study the nature of the church, the nature of the church. Just this past week, I was sitting with a friend, and he told me that he had read an article this past week from the Washington Post, in the Washington Post, and the article was titled, America's New Religion, Fake Christianity. America's New Religion, Fake Christianity. The church is the hope of the nations. It's the hope of the nations. But to be the hope of the nations, we have to live out our life together in obedience to God's word. We have to be biblical churches. We have to obey what Jesus has taught. We must be faithful to God and to each other. America needs faithful churches. Toledo needs faithful churches. So we're taking the summer to consider how we might be a faithful church patterned after God's Word. I'm grateful for Jordan preaching last week, preaching and challenging us to be a family that is not inclusive, but rather is open and seeks to sow seeds of evangelism and bring in those who are lost and to love them. Next Sunday, I'm excited to have a friend, Josh Disone, is going to be, he's one of our deacons here, he's going to be preaching on hospitality in the church, so you can look forward to that. Um, but This morning, we're going to be uh, talking about a gift that is precious, a gift that's precious. How many of you have received something in your lives, show of hands, that you consider to be a precious gift? Yeah, most of us have received things in our life that we consider precious. Some of those things are maybe precious because they're worth a lot in monetary value. Other things are not worth anything to, you know, one man's Junk is another man's treasure. One man's treasure is another man's junk. There are things that I deeply treasure that if I put it out on the side of the curb, I couldn't pay somebody to pick up and throw in the back of their truck, right? We all have things that are precious to us. So men who are married, maybe your wife considers her engagement ring a precious gift. A few years ago, after um, we, Aliyah and I moved to Waterville, we didn't have a whole lot of money, but Aliyah knew that I wanted a specific guitar that was not very cheap. And one Christmas, she, we were going a little light on each other, and, you know, we finished wrapping all the gifts, and she got me a guitar strap, you know, and then she's like, oh, you know, there's something else. And, and she actually, she pulls out this guitar from the garage and gives it to me. I wasn't expecting it. The guitar, it, it's, it's precious in a way to me. You know, if it's gone, I understand. But that holds meaning of full value to me, not because of what it is, but because of Aaliyah, my wife, giving it to me and what was behind that gift and how she saved for that. We all have gifts that are precious to us. Today, we're going to talk about a precious gift. And that gift is the gift of forgiveness. The gift of forgiveness. Forgiveness is different in that while we probably receive precious gifts throughout life, I receive a guitar, my wife received a wedding ring, maybe you've gone on a cruise or a trip that was a gift, Uh, those kinds of things aren't very frequently given. Forgiveness is different in that it must be given every day. Forgiveness is a precious gift that must be given every day. And 
when something becomes frequent, we're tempted to treat it in a way that is common, right? When we give something every day, over time, we run the risk of devaluing what we're given because it's something that's common. We can't afford to do that. Forgiveness is precious. Every single time, in the big areas and in the small, forgiveness is precious. So the church is a family that forgives. Would you stand with me as we read our text from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32? If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screens. We're going to be going through a, a number of different passages this morning, but we're going to anchor ourselves in Ephesians 4, 30 and 32. <clears throat> it says this, this is the word of the Lord. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, now we ask that as we turn to your word and we think about this most precious gift, that you would guide our hearts and minds. Be with my words. May your Holy Spirit guide me as I speak and soften all of our hearts and minds together. And it's the name of your Son, the giver through whom we have forgiveness. Amen. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, it is the glory of God to conceal things the glory of God to conceal a thing. You may be wondering why I say we're going to talk about forgiveness, and then I quote Proverbs from Proverbs 25. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing. The reason that I quote this verse up front is simply put, this verse, in a manner of speaking, is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is covering of sin. It's being sinned against, and instead of holding up that sin for other people to see or holding it up for just ourselves to reflect on mentally, it's putting it away. It's being done with it. It's to wipe an offense from our memory. And it's the glory of God to forgive our sins. It's the glory of God to forgive our sins. And if this is the case, then it's a glorious thing for us to forgive one another. Forgiveness is the most precious gift that you will ever receive and that you will ever give. I want us to understand that statement. It's the most precious gift that we will ever give or ever receive. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, offers a more robust definition of forgiveness in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And he says that we forgive others when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief but wish them well, when we will grieve at their calamities, when we will pray for them, when we'll seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, to relieve them of burdens, to be a help to them. That's what Thomas Watson said. And he came by this definition for, not from one verse in the Scripture, but from reading Scripture as a whole and listening to what God says to us about the nature of being sinned against and how we are to respond, whether it's from a brother or whether it's from somebody we do not know. This is not found in one single verse. This is weaved throughout the Scriptures. 
This is where he deduces and comes up with this definition of forgiveness. And I think it's helpful. Listen to this. I gave you the the Watson quote, but listen. He says, resist thoughts of revenge. Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Don't seek to do other people mischief. 1 Thessalonians, see that no one repays evil for evil. Wish them well. Luke 6, bless those who curse you. Grieve at their calamity. Proverbs 24, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. And how many of us know that our hearts are prone to chuckle when those who oppress us run into a rough spot in life? Pray for them, Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seek reconciliation, Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me, be at peace with your brother, with all men. That's what Romans 12 says. Always be willing to come to their relief, Exodus 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Putting these things together and taking them as a whole, the Bible defines forgiveness as resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, wishing well to those that harm us, grieving at their calamities, praying for their welfare, seeking reconciliation as far as it depends on us, and coming to their aid in a time of distress. That's a pretty big definition, a pretty big vision for what forgiveness is. And that's what the Bible teaches us. Responding in these ways is to forgive. And while we're on the topic of what forgiveness is, I just want to briefly take just a few moments to spell out a few things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a decision and a promise. When you say, I forgive you, Consider your forgiveness as a promise not to hold the sin against the person that has done you wrong. In that moment, we all know that the sin probably still stings. And depending on the offense, it may take some time to heal. But you should not ever withhold forgiveness unless, until you feel forgiving. You have been freely forgiven by God, so freely forgive. And let God take care of your healing. Don't focus on you fixing yourself so that you can be ready to forgive someone else. If you think you need to feel a certain way in order to give the gift of forgiveness, you won't be giving it in the way that God wants you to. You'll be procrastinating perpetually because we never feel ready to forgive. Forgiveness is a decision and a promise. It's not a feeling. Second, granting forgiveness does not mean that total trust will be restored or given immediately. When trust is broken, it needs to be rebuilt. We all know this. It takes time. It takes the work of both people's commitment. But we may not withhold forgiveness on the basis of not being able to trust. Trust is not a prerequisite for any of the things that we just talked about. Any of the things in Thomas Watson definition, none of those things. If I was to put them up on the screen, maybe I should have for you. None of those things that we talked about 
Resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, wishing them well, grieving at their calamities, praying for them, seeking reconciliation as far as we can, and coming to their aid. None of those things is trust a prerequisite for. Praise God that he doesn't take that approach with us, and he calls us to emulate him. Third, granting forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences for sin. It's purely not true. It's not true with God and us. It's not true with us and our spouses or us with our children or us with our bosses. It, that, that, it, the, the idea that there are no consequences if we give forgiveness, sometimes the consequences are also wiped away. I've done that with my children. You know, they've apologized and they, I should do something to them, but because of the way they apologized, I say, okay, I'm going to show you mercy. So that happens at times. But generally speaking, forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't any consequences for wrong actions committed. So those are briefly three things I think we need to remember aren't, um, aren't predicated in forgiveness. They aren't, forgiveness is not a feeling. It doesn't mean that trust is going to be given like that immediately, and it doesn't mean there's any consequences. But forgiveness is a lot of things and a lot of actions, a lot of, of ways of thinking, and it's very important. Forgiveness, I want to say something else. Forgiveness is a uniquely Christian belief. You may not buy that. But forgiveness is a uniquely Christian belief. It belongs to the family of Christ. How do I say this? Well, God is the only one who can forgive the guilt of sin. That's Mark 2, 7. That's what the Pharisees said to Jesus when they saw Jesus saying, I declare that your sins are forgiven. They said, what? Who can forgive but God alone? Jesus doesn't argue with them. He's only maintaining that he is God. He is the Son of God. God alone has the ability to forgive sin. Therefore, forgiveness belongs to our Heavenly Father God. His forgiveness has been shared with us as believers in the death of Jesus. That's how we experience what true forgiveness really is. And so forgiveness is uniquely Christian. It's a uniquely Christian doctrine. No other religion on earth has the same force behind forgiveness because no other religion has an awareness of a personal relationship with God in which forgiveness can be offered. So in Hinduism, all have to pay the consequences of karma in the wheel of reincarnations. Buddhism knows nothing of a forgiving God. The idea is present in Islam, but there's no personal God or Father to grant the forgiveness to us as his sons and daughters in the context of that kind of relationship. It's shallow in comparison to what Scripture teaches. Even in Judaism, forgiveness remains a limited experience. You remember, I'm not bickering with the Old Testament and what it says, you remember that in the New Testament we're told Jesus said, remember it is said, you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the, the religious leaders were teaching so it's a limited experience. The doctrine of forgiveness in the gospel stands in stark contrast with all of these things. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. It's a command. It's a command from God through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. It's a command to God to me and to each and every single one of you, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ 
also has forgiven you. Not only is forgiveness unique to Christianity and to the church, it is necessary. It is necessary. We must be a family that forgives. There are two straightforward reasons why forgiveness is so vital, so necessary in our life. First, forgiveness is necessary because we all sin. That's the reality. Every single one of us, we are all weak. The strongest man in this room is weak. We all fail, and we do so perpetually. I'm not speaking in some theoretical sense in which we can mentally assent to this idea that, yes, we are born fallen, and therefore we we mess up at some times, and and we always always sort of bear the title of sinner, but, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. No, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm not talking about that kind of weakness. And if you think about yourself in that way, then, then I hope this sermon challenges you, especially this morning. I am talking about the real, everyday sins that we commit against our spouses, against our children, against our friends, against those in our small group, against our bosses and our coworkers, against our neighbors. We lie. We shade the truth, which is to lie. We exaggerate so that people might think well of us, which is to lie. We lose our tempers. We are proud. We assume the worst. We are selfish. We aren't satisfied. We hold grudges. We are unfaithful. We run our mouths. And I'm not saying that in any way we ought to be at peace with these sins by saying that this is us and we do this perpetually. We aren't to be at peace with them. God calls us again and again to fight our flesh, to be in the world but not of the world, to be holy as He is holy, to run the race so as to win the prize, not so as to come sort of middle of the pack, to resist the devil. And God is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us, and we must pursue that cleansing. We must pursue the cleansing, and yet, and yet, And yet, at the end of it all, our best deeds in ourselves are filthy rags. That is what the Scripture teaches. Our most uh, glorious, selfless, righteous deeds are still, still tainted by sin, by pollution. Who can give money to the poor without congratulating himself in his mind? Who can lend to a neighbor without the notion of pride? Who can live righteously without becoming conceited and prone to comparisons? Nobody can. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? It is fundamental that we understand this if we are to truly understand forgiveness. If we are really to understand what I said earlier, that forgiveness is the most precious gift we will ever give and ever receive, we must understand the reality of our sinfulness, not as an excuse, not as a pity party, as a reality to be repented of and to be pushed to God because of. This was Jesus' point when he approached the Pharisees, and, he asked the, and the Pharisees asked him about a woman that they had caught in adultery. 
They approach him and they say, teacher, we've got a question for you. We found this lady. She's been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. But what say ye? What do you say? What do you want us to do with her? And Jesus didn't give them the time of day because they knew he was testing them. They were testing him, rather. He didn't bother with them. And so it is a strange verse, and it says he gets down on the ground and begins to draw in the sand. And it's sort of a mysterious verse. What's he doing? We're not told. I've heard some crazy explanations like that being an excuse for drama in the church on Sundays. Hey, Jesus did it. He drew in the sand. I don't know what he was doing, but he was clearly ignoring the Pharisees, right? He was saying to them, listen, dirtying my fingernail is more important to me right now than listening to what you have to say to me. They persisted, and so he said to them, he who is without sin among you, you be the one to throw the first stone. What's Jesus doing? He's making a statement that these self-righteous Pharisees are sinners just like the woman. They're no less less worthy. They are no less worthy of God's mercy and grace than she is. And they're no less Um, they're no more safe from God's wrath than she is. The Pharisees made a whole occupation of ignoring their sins and at the same time taking a highlighter to the sins of others. And so, of course, they are opposed to showing mercy. They want Jesus to come down on the side of Moses and pick up a stone. Of course they're opposed to forgiving this woman's sin because they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves in need of forgiveness. And so, of course... They're looking for the nearest rock. While we are still on this earth, while we are still in body, we do everything imperfectly. Freedom from failing is a fruit of glory. We won't have total freedom from failing on this earth. We now see dimly as in a mirror. We only know in part. We stumble in many ways. Who knows how many ways? If we don't understand this, if we don't see our sins for what they are, we will not value forgiveness or see why it's necessary for the church family. We won't get it. We'll be offended. We'll hold grudges. We'll think we're better than so-and-so. We'll gossip about other people's sin. If we don't have a fundamental, deep in our bones, in our heart, in our mind, humble understanding of our sinfulness, not as an excuse, but as our condition before a holy and righteous God. So forgiveness is necessary, and it's necessary because we are all sinners. And more than that, we are all sinners that sin against each other in real, tangible ways. We fail each other, we hurt each other, we offend each other often. And the remedy that Jesus provides for all of our hurts and all of our offenses is forgiveness. Forgiveness that has healed us with our relationship with God is the same forgiveness that Jesus calls us to apply to the wounds of our human relationships. You know how to heal yourself so that you feel like forgiving? It's kind of counterintuitive. Forgive, right? Forgive and allow God to heal you. Forgiveness is the remedy that God, Jesus and God has given us for when people sin against us. We have to understand that. Our attempt to deal with each other's sin in any other way will lead to infection, to rot, to disease. It will lead to bondage, not freedom. It will lead to bondage. If you know somebody who doesn't forgive anyone, they are a very sad man or woman. You look at somebody who refuses to forgive, and it could start small when they're young, and as they grow, they don't repent, and they still hold grudges and don't forgive when they're old. They are miserable people. You, uh, that's all I'm going to say. They are miserable people. 
it leads to bondage when we don't forgive, not freedom. When we hold back uh, forgiveness, it leads to factions, not love. It leads to hell, not heaven. We must remember who we are. The reality is that the church is a family, and in the family there is sin. The defining feature of a good family is not sinlessness. The defining feature of a good family is not sinlessness. It is forgiveness. That is the defining feature of a loving, healthy, godly family. You know, when we sin each other, uh, there's, there's an illustration that we use often when we're talking about forgiveness uh, with, in premarital counseling, and we've been doing a lot of that, so it's on my mind. Whenever we sin against each other, imagine that junk blocks, Legos, the things you hate to see laying around your house. Picture that, parents. Whatever you hate to see, half-eaten peanut butter and jelly sandwich. When we sin, that thing is thrown out into the middle of the floor, and we make a mess of our house. That's what happens when we sin against each other in our families. We make a spiritual, relational mess of the homes that we live in. And imagine with me two different homes. One is pristinely clean. The other is totally covered in junk. One, the throw pillows are on the sofa. The animacassars are on the armrest. The books are just at that nice cool angle on the coffee table. The rug has been swept and you see the little lines in the carpet. I haven't seen that in 10 years. No, I have. We sweep a lot. But. That's what one house looks like. The other house has got Legos and Duplos and Connects. And why do we even own all three of these things? Let's just consolidate down to one. And peanut butter and jelly and the, and the, and the baby bottle is leaking milk all over the floor and going into the crevices of the hardwood. And you look at these two houses... And if you're making the analogy to sinning against each other during the course of the day and sin-making messes, the difference, we think that in one home there are no messes, and in the other home it's just a, it's a complete wreck, right? There's, you, you, if you saw those two houses, pictures of those houses, you'd assume that those families are very different. One, they're sinless, and the other, man, they, they got real problems. It's not the reality. The reality is, is that they both threw out things all day long, made a mess in that house all day long. There was junk in both, on both carpets. But in the one house, they forgave each other. Each time they forgave each other, that mess was cleaned up. That mess was removed from the house. In the other, it wasn't dealt with. At the end of the day, those two houses look very, very different. One you'd like to move into. The other, they don't even have any throw pillows, right? We want to be in this house... We don't, want to, we don't want those this house over here as our neighbors. The difference is not that this, these people over here are perfect and these people over here got issues. The difference is that in this house over here, every time there was a mess made as a result of sin, it was dealt with. It was dealt with. And I just want to say, when we sin against each... When we, when we are the ones sinning, like, clean your mess up quickly. Don't wait to ask for forgiveness. Jesus says when you take your gift to the altar, if you remember that you have a, uh, something against your neighbor, go, don't offer that sacrifice, don't give that tithe, don't give that offering, and make it right with your neighbor immediately. Elsewhere in the scripture it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's a principle there. Don't wait. I know, I, I sin against my wife, I sin against my kids, I sin against you. 
I know what it feels like to, to, to know that I've sinned and I don't really want to apologize. And we have to make a habit of sh- keeping short accounts with each other. When you sin, apologize quickly, clean up the mess, and when you are on the receiving end of that sin, offer forgiveness. Don't wait. Don't wait. You don't want to live in that house over there that looks like a mess. Who wants to go to bed at night with that sort of thing in your living room? Nobody. So deal with sins. Deal with sins. Oscar Wilde said, children start by loving their parents, then by judging them. Sometimes they forgive them. This is actually true of all close relationships, not just the family. He's using the family because there's intrinsically, should, there should be by nature closeness, and that's what he's speaking to. The reality of sin, the reality of closeness to that sin, and the necessity and the beauty of forgiveness, and how we shouldn't take it for granted. Sometimes they forgive them. But in the church of God, where we've been given forgiveness freely, it's an expectation that we freely offer it in return. It's easy to be at peace with those that you hardly know, with those that you aren't really affected by, but as relationships deepen and mature, you see each other for who you really are. You see each other's warts, and we all have them. So I say again, the defining feature of a happy family is not that we don't sin. It is that we give forgiveness. We choose forgiveness. So first, forgiveness is necessary because we're sinners. Second, forgiveness is necessary because Jesus commands us to forgive as we have been forgiven. In other words, forgiveness is optional. I'm sorry, forgiveness is not optional, it's essential. Remember, just a few moments ago, when Jake was finishing his prayer, we all prayed the words that Jesus taught us, and one of the lines in that prayer says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you think about the gravity of what Jesus is teaching us with those words? He says that if we hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, if we aren't willing to forgive other people, then we are not his sheep and we will not join him in heaven. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. I hope so. But sometimes we repeat things without thinking about what we're saying, and we shouldn't do that. That is what Jesus is teaching us through this prayer. If we don't forgive we aren't going to be forgiven. That's literally the words we're saying. It's a very serious statement. We should never pray this without understanding the serious implications of what we're asking. If we nurture feelings of resentment or anger, if we assume the worst, if we seek revenge, or maybe more to the point here in the context of this family, if there are people that you don't really like and and hope you don't have to talk to or hope you don't get stuck near or even people whom you, 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 you simply don't want to see them receive good from the Lord, then this prayer, when we pray it, is actually we're, we're asking for our sins not to be forgiven. That's what Jesus is teaching. We ask that he do to us the very same thing that we do to others. And this means that we're petitioning God to a heavier judgment on our behalf if we ask for his forgiveness but then go through life withholding forgiveness from those who come to us or even those that don't. Jesus commands us to forgive. Forgiveness is part and parcel with faith. If we don't forgive, we don't have faith. How can I say this? Well, Jesus says if we don't forgive, we won't be with him in heaven. It's as simple as that. Forgiveness is precious. Forgiveness is uniquely Christian. Forgiveness is fundamentally necessary for two reasons, that we're sinners 
and because Jesus commands it, and yet, for as simple and straightforward as this should be, as forgiveness should be, we are all tempted not to forgive. That's the reality. Each and every single one of us feels that weight in our hearts that says, ah, do I really want to? We often seek to make it more complicated and more nuanced and conditional than Jesus' instructions would allow. But why? Well, I don't have to say, it's hard. It is hard. Forgiveness might be one of the hardest things that we ever do in our entire lives. It might be one of the greatest trials. You think about all sorts of various trials and sufferings and wrestlings, but the reality is, is that many of those things, the things that affect us most greatly in our lives, even if it, 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 most of those things are always connected to sins. You understand that? Think about the things that weigh on you the most. Maybe it's not your sin, maybe it is. But most often, trials and suffering are related to someone's sins in our life. That's just the case, and I expect, um, I suspect for all of us, this is the case. I know, reflecting in my own life, it's the case. And so we need forgiveness. But it's hard, yet Jesus' words make it clear to us that though it's hard, it's not optional. It's necessary. So what makes forgiveness hard? We're going to end here. What makes forgiveness hard? One basic, simple thing that manifests itself in all sorts of ways and cloaks itself in all sorts of disguises, one thing makes forgiveness hard, and that is that is our pride. Pride makes forgiveness hard. Pride keeps us from forgiveness. There's a time where Jesus is approached in his earthly ministry, and he's approached by his disciple, one of the closest disciples, disciple Peter. And, it, and Peter questions Jesus about the nature and the extent of forgiveness, and he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, this is kind of a humble brag here, because what Peter assumes is that he's going above and beyond the expectation by saying, up to seven times? Even, Lord, for me, I'm willing to grant forgiveness seven times? He's getting extra credit. It's super erogatory, right? It's, it's beyond, it's, it's one of those extra special righteous deeds. This is the way we think. We are Peter. There is a reasonable, rational limit to our love. There is a reasonable and rational limit to our forgiveness. We're not even responsible if we forgive more than seven times. God couldn't expect that from me. But Jesus responds by saying to Peter, no, seven times isn't nearly enough, Peter. Seventy times seven times. Peter has his mind blown by Jesus and by Jesus commanding him to emulate God's forgiveness. And then Jesus shares this story with Peter. He says there was a kingdom that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with all of his slaves. And he started beginning to settle them and he noticed one of the slaves had a great debt. Ten thousand talents. He brought that slave to him. The slave had no means of repaying that debt. And so the king said, you're going to be sold and you're going to work like a dog until you repay everything that you owe me. And that slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself down and said, please have mercy on me. I've got a wife and children. I can't afford to pay it. The king's heart was struck, was softened. The king chose to have mercy and he forgave him the debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors. That's the literal Greek word. He forgave him that debt, forgiveness. That slave, 
he went out from there, and instead of rejoicing, he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, one hundredth of what he owed the king. And he seized him, and he said, pay back what you owe, while he was choking him by his collar. There's no humility here. It's gone. This guy has just been forgiven a debt hugely bigger than what this other guy has owed. His pride hadn't been deflated. Perhaps the forgiveness of the king actually wounded his pride and and caused this slave to double down and to say, I'm going to raise my esteem once again. That was humiliating. Give me somebody who I can raise my esteem with their collar. His fellow slave fell to the ground. He began to plead with him, saying, Have patience on me, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling, and he threw him into prison until he could repay. When other slaves saw what happened, they realized the injustice, and they went and told the king what that wicked slave had done. The king called back the slave that he had initially pardoned, and he said, You wicked slave, I forgave you the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. And he ends by saying this. The story's over there. Jesus says to Peter and to you, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother and not just that, but from his heart. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Pride is what caused this slave to act as he did. Don't think pride is a small, clean sin. Pride that isn't fought is a damning sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't messing around with these warnings. He doesn't take it lightly when we are pitied, helped, forgiven, covered, and born with by him who is holy and perfect and righteous who has not ever sinned and cannot even look on sin. And yet then, we have no patience when we leave his presence. We have no patience and love for other sinners like ourselves who need forgiveness. Our pride is always working to keep us from forgiveness. Satan is not interested in reconciliation. You understand that? Satan doesn't want us to be reconciled with God. Satan doesn't want us to be reconciled with our brother. What is Satan in Scripture? He's called the accuser. He's not the forgiver. He's the accuser. This is why the apostle would say, Paul would say, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. I've forgiven you. If anything was done to me, I've forgiven you already because we, don't, we can't bear to be outwitted by Satan in our work. This is what Paul the, the, the importance that Paul put on forgiveness. We know that Satan's chief aim is to keep us from loving God and loving our neighbor. His chief aim is to keep us from forgiving, being forgiven by God and forgiving our neighbor. We must not let that happen. We can't let our pride keep us from forgiveness, but rather we must seek to imitate Jesus Christ. And the truth is, there's immense blessing in that. I know that for the majority of our time together, I've said that forgiveness often can be hard. But man, we couldn't end this morning without saying that actually forgiveness is also wonderful. It's not just hard. It, can, it is hard. But it's like many things that are hard in life. 
the most wonderful things in life are hard. You think about labor. You think about working towards something. I mean, you see it all throughout life. Life is full of wonderful things that are hard. And forgiveness is the very same. Forgiveness is wonderful. It's freedom. It's joy. It's gladness. It's Christ-likeness. It's pursuing the glory of God. Receiving Christ's forgiveness delivers us from the bondage of sin and allows us to freely give as we have freely received. Forgiveness is a privilege. It is a privilege for the child of God. It is a privilege. The church is a family, and when the family gives and receives forgiveness, there will be joy, and our lives will bear witness to the testimony that mercy triumphs over judgment. Forgiveness is the most precious gift that we'll ever give, that we'll ever receive. It's true. It's what the Bible teaches. And I pray that we will be a church that is generous in our forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for forgiving us, sinners in your sight. The fact that we sit here right now in your presence, not as we justly deserve as recipients of your wrath and displeasure, but as as sons and daughters of the promise, sons with Christ, receiving a great inheritance, Lord, we have nothing to offer you. And we have received so much. And so we pray that even when we, uh, the way that we treat each other, when we are treated in, in, in bad ways, we pray that all we would offer them is forgiveness and love for your name's sake and for your glory and for our peace and love. Build this family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.